Our focus this past week, as you see, is encountering the God of the universe. The big verse this week, great is the Lord, most worthy of praise. No one, his greatness no one can fathom. And we want to continue that this morning, kind of wrap it up this morning. Uh, as we explored this week the characteristics of God, his care, his omniscience, his forgiveness, his enabling, and his love. But one of the things that we didn't have a chance to focus on during this past week, and I want to focus on this morning, is, is first of all how God has, then, how God has now uh, enabled us, is working through the people of God. He is working through the church, and how the church then is to go about our business of sharing Jesus. Uh, as we see the love and forgiveness of God come to cosmic fruition in Jesus Christ, we see through the book of Acts that this is now being handed over to you and to me. It is now up to us to live a life that, that shares Jesus. And that's our, our tag phrase, our mission statement, our vision around here. It's really simple, really cre- clear, really concise. That's what Oakland Drive is all about. We are about sharing Jesus. And that is what God has called his people to do. I've quoted often, I'll quote again, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We then call everyone, be reconciled to God, right? That's what we're about. And so we want to focus on that today in the most VBS version I can think of, me standing up here talking, and that is flannel graph. <laughs> Woo! I don't know if that's one word or two. Spell check said, I don't know what to do with either one of those. So I went with one word. One of the things that we believe as a church, and, and we're going to be looking at Acts 3 and 4. I'm not going to be reading through it. I'll be telling the story and summarizing, but please use those chapters and go back through them in your family worship this week and your personal devotions this week. Uh, but one of the things that we believe as a church and as a movement is that we believe that what we see in the scriptures is what we ought to do. So the pattern, the life, the the way that Jesus and the apostles and the early church lived is the way that we as the church ought to live, live too. And we see that coming through, I think, in um, the story. So here we go. Maybe we need to pull these lights down a little bit. Can you see that okay? Lower the lights. There we go. Peter, John, crippled dude. So the story begins in Acts chapter 3 with an act of kindness. Peter and John are going up to the temple. And on the way to the temple, they meet a crippled dude. Uh, There's actually a lot of people. This gate is called the Gate Beautiful. And and contrary to what you would think of a beautiful gate, they used to bring all of the crippled, the lame, the poor, beggars. And they would line that gate because as people went up to the temple, they would see these people and give alms, right? You you would feel bad and you'd want to give them alms. And Peter stops and he looks at this one guy and he says, you know, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up. And walk. And so Peter grabs him and lifts him up, and instantly his legs become strong, his ankles strengthen, and he is able to stand up. The first time in 40 years that this guy has stood up, and you guys might remember the song as a kid. He goes walking and leaping and praising God. Walking and leaping and praising God. It says in the Bible his legs grew strong, and they did. He was able to do front flips right out the gate. 
Of course, this causes quite a stir because it's not just him. I, you know, we could only get so many flannel graph dudes up here. And so it wasn't just him. There was all kinds of people. And, and as soon as they begin to see this guy who they knew, because every day he was at the gate, beautiful, begging just like we were. And here he is, you know, doing front flips and stuff. They're, 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 they're uh, wondering what's happening. And the people show up and they, they start to come and see what's going on. But, but Peter and John quickly escape and they go right into the temple. And the people follow and the man that they just healed is clinging to them. And Peter has a chance then to express, to explain, to say, hey, let me tell you what's happening right now. The Jesus that just a few months ago you crucified has been raised from the dead. He is the one that Moses foretold. Thousands of years ago, Moses foretold, who said a prophet would arise out of Israel like none other, and you must listen to him. And Peter says, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. Well, this is a a great deal of commotion that's going on, and they're proclaiming Jesus, and and keep in your mind that that they crucified him, and he was resurrected just just a few months ago. Like, this is fresh in everybody's mind. Everybody remembers this, and so do the priests and the captain of the temple guard. And so the temple guard comes forward, and they take Peter and John into custody, and they hold them overnight. And the next day, they gather together, The Sanhedrin, which is the group of people that's made up of chief priests and scribes and Pharisees, the experts in the law, the people who know everything about everything, the great, the great uh, religious leaders. And they ask the question to Peter and John, by what authority are you doing these things? Where does your authority to to speak about resurrection, to speak about the kingdom of God, to speak about following Jesus, where does your authority come from? Because we speak from Torah. We speak the words of Moses. And Peter stands up. Now remember, what is Peter's, uh, you guys remember, what is Peter's job? Fisherman, that was slow. You're in VBS. You're being so quiet and good. This is nothing like VBS was this week. As we told stories, right, Cheryl? Wherever you are, where are you? There you are, right, Cheryl? Dwayne's head's like blocking you directly. That's why I couldn't see. Um, they, where was I? Fisherman, right, thank you. That is like VBS. <laughs> fisherman, he's just a fisherman, right? He's, he's not an orator. He's not a, he's not a religious scholar. He's, he's no one special. He's a common man. And, and he stands up boldly and he proclaims the Jesus that they crucified just a few months ago. Again, he is raised from the dead and Jesus is now the authority by which I speak. And he says something very controversial. If you could put yourself in the position of these religious leaders, of these good Jews who have followed the law just like they're supposed to, He says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, he says, For salvation comes through no one else other than Jesus. For there is no name under heaven given to men whereby we must be saved. He he narrows that road right down to this. If you haven't come by Jesus, if you haven't come through him, then you aren't saved. And all these religious leaders are They're shocked. What are you talking about? We're not saved. We're the children of Abraham. We've obeyed the law. We're religious leaders. Look at this awesome outfit I've got on. If that's not a saved dude, I don't know what one looks like. And Peter has the gall as a common man to say, it's Jesus or nothing. It's Jesus or nothing. 
And so they're, they're, they're not sure what to do with these guys, and they begin to talk amongst themselves, and they want to punish them. Obviously, they're a little upset. Did you see the outfit and the hat? The hat. But they can't punish him because they just saw him heal somebody, and this somebody everyone knows, and he's been crippled for 40 years, and how do you punish a guy who's just gone ahead and done this? And so they threaten him. They say, Peter and John... You are not allowed to teach in the name of Jesus anymore. And Peter, who you remember, he's the guy that's always the first to speak up, right? He's the first one to put his foot in his mouth, and he's sometimes the first one to say something really cool and brave. And he says something really cool and brave to these guys. He says, well, what is better for us to obey God or for us to obey man? For we will not stop speaking of what we have seen and what we have heard. And they offer them more threats, uh, more fear. And and you can imagine the fear that would be going through Peter's mind because they followed through on their threats to Jesus, right? I mean, that wasn't a threat. That was a promise, and they made it happen. And the same thing is now happening to Peter and to John, and by extension, the entire community of believers no longer teach in the name of Jesus. So what are the believers going to do? They gather together after this. They gather together immediately and they begin to pray. And this, I think, is one of the most crucial, if you're taking notes today, and we have notes on the back of the bulletin there, if you're taking notes, I think one of the most crucial prayers in all of the book of Acts and really all of the New Testament is right here. The first time we rec- there's a record of the believers gathering to pray and what they said. And here we have what they said here. They quote uh, from Psalm 3, Why do the Gentiles rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves up. The rulers of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. Remember the word anointed means Messiah and Messiah means Christ. Against God and against Jesus. And Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy written down by David so long ago. The governments, the kings, the rulers, they will resist you and you will die. And the believers then apply this to themselves. They say, we've seen it happen, and it's going to happen again. So look upon their threats, Lord. See their threats. And here comes the next and important point. What are they going to do? What do they want God to do? See their threats and give us the strength to preach boldly in the face of the threats. And God, stretch out your hand and do healings and do signs and do wonders By the name of Jesus Christ. And as they pray this this bold, this bold prayer, the place that they have gathered in is shaken. Shaken, not stirred. If you remember uh, that uh, the place was shaken when they were gathered together in the first, in the giving of Pentecost, right? The whole place was shaken. And this image is carried through here. It's shaken again. And from this point on, the believers are going to begin marching outside of Jerusalem. They're going outside of the holy city, even outside of the people of God. And the whole rest of the book of Acts is a recapitulation over and over and over again. God acts, they proclaim, they are persecuted. God acts, they proclaim, they are persecuted. In fact, if we could, if we could make a, a map of this prayer, if we were to look at this as I think we ought to, a, a pattern of how we ought to witness, we would see this chiastic structure. 
This is the first part of the story with Peter and John. This is the second part of the story with the believers gathering to prayer. And we see that again. First, God acts through Peter's healings. Then uh, Peter and John witness to what has been done. Then the powers resist, they persecute. And then it begins again. The believers gather and they pray, Lord, notice the persecutions. Lord, give us boldness to preach. Lord, stretch out your hand and do miracles. This structure highlights the importance of the pattern. Does that make sense? Are you with me? You have to ask that with kids because they lose, they lose track quick. So what would we see if we were begin to use this as a pattern for how we ought to act and move in the world as I suggest that we ought to? It begins here with a very simple and maybe even overly honest move. It begins with God. Now, it's no secret that the church has widely and for a long time, in fact, as far back as my church memory goes, I remember people talking about, we need to pray for revival. How many of you heard that? How many are guilty of saying that? Or believing that? How many of you are guilty of praying for that? We want revival. And what does that mean? That means that we sense within the church a loss of power. That there is within the church something missing. That there is a, a holy discontent and, and we want something to happen. That even as we look across the, the United States today, and, and there's much talk about the church shrinking, and yet churches are being planted all over the place. All over the churches planting here. Two churches planted in Portage last year. Portage, right? I can't spit and not hit a church here. And they planted two more. Right? Churches are being planted all over the place. There's all kinds of Christian activity, church planning, social activity to try to do good for other people. And yet in all of this movement and all of this stuff that's happening, are we really holier? Do we really love one another more deeply and share our lives more intentionally? Are we really more evangelistic and those questions, I think, sit heavy on us. And we ask the question, why, God? Why is there not this explosion? If there's all this activity, why aren't we seeing the holiness? Why aren't we seeing the love? Why aren't we seeing the, the boost, the boom of people coming to Jesus? Perhaps, perhaps it's because we're not praying right. Perhaps it's because our focus is set somewhere else. Maybe we've neglected the clear patterns of Scripture in favor for that which is Popular, hip, expedient. It begins here with God. I think we forget that. We see that in both stories. First, Peter and John, by the power of God, they heal the crippled man and the people come and they come and see. And then with the believers, when they get together and pray, they ask God, stretch out your hand, do signs, do wonders. Heal somebody, God. We're ready to see your power displayed. We're ready to see it. And I would draw a few conclusions from that and i know it sounds simplistic but it begins with god and so often we forget that don't we it begins with god and we forget that we get bent out of shape because people maybe aren't asking questions about our faith or or maybe some of us are feeling the i don't know the burden the guilt because we feel like we've got to go up to complete strangers and say yo repent or die don't do that right that's not a great evangelistic uh way to go and some of us manufacture opportunities. We, we look and we try to bring it up. I had a friend um, 
in college, and man, he would talk to anybody. We'd be perusing science fiction at Barnes and Nobles, and somehow he's telling this guy about Jesus. The poor guy just wanted some comic books. And, you know, he's assaulting him with Jesus. <laughs> he's, a, he's a crazy guy. But, you know, I, I think sometimes we bear a burden or we place a priority on something that isn't our burden and isn't our priority. Because what do we see the believers doing? They begin with the belief that praying to God will re- produce results. And what are those results? Those results are that God will do something first. That God will act first. They believe that it will happen this way. And they believe, with the, uh, they be- they believe this assumption that Anything that's going to come out of what they say or do, anything that comes out of their life, anything that's a sign, is going to lead people to them, and they will then be given the task of sharing Jesus. I think of this, this verse, you write this down, Matthew eleven twenty nine and 30, which say, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Have you heard that before? I've thought about that verse a lot over the years. I really love it. I think it sounds fantastic, but I don't know what it means. Because if you've been a Christian for a long time, I don't know that we would call this the yoke that is easy or the burden that's light. I mean, would Peter and John and these, are they going to say the yoke is easy and the burden is light here in the face of persecution? So what is Jesus getting at? Well, moments before this outburst in, in Matthew chapter 11, if you read the whole section, it really does feel like Jesus just outbursts. But Jesus begins by praising God for revealing the kingdom of God, for revealing the truths of the gospel to children and not to the wise and learned. And, and I think this brings up a perfect point to say that in this context here, The wise, the learned, the powerful, the wealthy, they have themselves to rely on. If you have a ton of money, what do you need God for? If you have all kinds of power, what do you need God for? If you have all kinds of wisdom, what do you need God for? And this is the attitude of that group. Instead, Jesus says, you've revealed it to those who are lowly, those who are meek, those who are innocent, those who are the downtrodden, those who are mourning, those who really need you. You have revealed yourself to them, and you have given them a burden that is light. Because if we think about the difference between powerful, wealthy, uh, uh, wise people and kids, what's the difference? Kids are convinced that mom and dad have the bills under control. They're convinced that mom and dad will take care of tomorrow as well as today. They don't toil. We know they don't toil, right? They don't sow. They don't reap. They don't put away in barns. And yet God has the hairs of their head numbered, and they can simply trust that. And that's what God is doing here What does that all mean? It means that it is not up to us to draw crowds. It's not up to us to do the miracles. It's not up to us to save the world. It's not up to us to end racism. But like children, it is up to us to proclaim the goodness of God's love, to revel in his grace and in his provision, to trust in his power and protection, to be the post-racial people. Not because we have found a way to defeat all of the different racial stereotypes or racial inequalities, but because the scriptures say in Jesus, the wall of separation has been broken down. We don't break anything down. 
Jesus already accomplished it. It's already been done. It's already been completed. When Jesus is finished on the cross, he says, it's finished. And so in the church, what is there? There's no longer male or female. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer rich or poor. There's no longer black or white. These things mean nothing because all are made one in Christ. We didn't create it. We didn't stop it. We didn't make it happen. It's real. And the question is, will we as a church live like it's real? Will we put the yoke on that just says, yoke yourself up to Jesus and let him lead the way? Will we follow? Will we let him lead us? That's the question. That's the question. And that's what we forget in our, in our desire to share Jesus because I know most of you well enough to know that you want to share Jesus with somebody. My fear, though, is that you place the pressure on yourself to manufacture something that isn't up to you to manufacture. And the message of the gospel is this. God has already done it. Let your light shine. Let it shine. And then they see the good deeds, and they give praise to your Father in heaven. And then that leads us to our obligation, because we do have a place in the story. And that's here, that we are to bear witness to what God is doing. And that's what we see with Peter and John. Peter didn't heal. It was the name of Jesus that healed. But Peter then bears witness and says, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. The believers say the same thing. They say, grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. We are called, we are called to declare the bold, with boldness what Jesus has done. I think of a text in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. You can scratch that down as well. Jesus says to us, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Did you hear that, little children? Nothing that is hidden stays hidden long. What I tell you, Jesus says, in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaimed from the roof, rooftops, Jesus uh, elucidates to, the, to his disciples all of his teachings, and you have it now in your hand. It's been given in secret. It's been given to a small group of people, and now your job is to stand on the housetop, stand on the rooftop, shout it out, let people know, let them see, let them hear. Don't fear those who can kill the body and can't touch the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And this is a powerful injunction, is it not? That if the Holy Spirit transforms you, what we call sanctification, if you begin to become a new kind of person so that you are no longer driven by greed or by lust or by envy, those things that used to drag you down and ruin relationships and consume your time, you've let them go. Or, or perhaps people say, See us in VBS, not just doing VBS with kids, but getting ready for VBS. And they see from beginning the first ball that goes up to the last ball that comes down. They see how we love to cooperate and to work and to share and to, to live life together. That our, our ministry together isn't just what we do so everyone can see, but how we live with one another. How we work together and they look at us and they say, man, I see you guys loving each other. Just loving to be around people. Just loving to, to work and trust one another. And perhaps maybe they see your joy 
shining in a dark time when you are suffering or your family's suffering or your job stinks and things aren't working out and yet they see in you joy that is shining forth. What is your obligation? These are the moments that God has transformed us and made us new kinds of people and now our job is thus. Tell people why. That's not very hard, is it? The most simple of us, the, the smallest kid can say, well, Jesus has made me different. Can you say that? Jesus has made me different. Right? There you go. That's it. It's not that hard. It's not that hard. It's an easy yoke. It's an easy burden. And yet Jesus does say this warning. And this is our discussion this morning in, in our new members class of why I always begin when somebody comes to me and says I want to become a Christian, I try to talk them out of it. Because Jesus says persecution will come. It's going to come. This is the cycle. This is the story. This is always what happens. This is what we see happening with Peter and John. They're imprisoned. They're questioned. They're threatened. And they're ordered, be silent. And the believers assume that this is going to be happening for a while. <laughs> Look upon their threats. And as we read through the book of Acts, we see this threat upon threat upon threat. Sometimes it's a threat because they have threatened the power of local authorities. Perhaps they have messed up the local economy. Sometimes they're confronting false beliefs and false religions. But each time the gospel goes forth, each time you say Jesus Christ is Lord, you're confronting someone who has placed an idol where God goes. And that's going to cause trouble going to cause trouble. And we have to be ready for this. There's a great line from a Rich Mullins song, and I think it's, it's true about Jesus. He's talking about Jesus, but I think it's true of all of us. He says, who's that man who says he's a preacher? Well, he must be. He's disturbing all our peace. And my experience with Jesus is that every time I get real comfortable, he disturbs my peace. We're a disturbed people. Take that however you want to. In more ways than one, absolutely. We're disturbed and disturbing all at the same time. And that's what we're supposed to be. The scriptures don't ever treat us like we fit in. We are always the square peg to the round hole. And the world always finds a way to confront us and to make things not fit right. And any time we sort of slide in, we fit, and everything is going along just, just smooth as can be, that's the moment that we should stop and say, what's wrong with me? Not when things are going wrong, but when things are going right. And that's when we need to step in, in in faith and say, well, am I declaring boldly the name of Jesus? Because I know declaring the name of Jesus gets me in trouble. And if I'm not in trouble, maybe I'm not declaring the name of Jesus. But let me propose another question to you. Think about this for a moment. One of the things that I see in the book of Acts is that God moves, right? We began with that, God moves. And we began this whole line of thinking with the question of why isn't God moving, right? Why isn't there that revival? Why isn't there that life? Why isn't there that power? Why isn't there those signs and wonders and miracles? Why isn't this stuff happening in our midst? And we, we wonder about that. What if God knows that if he stretches out his hand and persecution comes, you will shrink back? 
What if God knows that you are so comfortable where you are? You like life just like it is. You, you, you are so happy with how things are that if he stretched out his hand and did something big and it was time for you to stand up and like Peter confront the whole world, tell people who've come because they want to hear, tell people who don't want to hear it at all, Jesus is Lord, you need to come to him if you want salvation. If you want life, you've got to come to the author of life. If he knows you won't have the courage to stand up on that soapbox, If he knows you won't step out on that limb of faith because you are too afraid of losing friends, of losing influence, of losing money, of losing hobbies, of losing your job, of losing your life, why would he stretch his hand out for us? If we're afraid of persecution, why would God act? That's a heavy question. A heavy question for all of us, I think, Because comfort is a blight to the Christian. Maybe we should pray to God, God, disturb our lives some more. Mess it up more. Because we want to see your hand. We want to see your power. And we hunger to preach Jesus. Lastly, we rinse and repeat. We just do the same thing over and over again. And that's what we see. We saw it in, that, in the chiastic framework of Acts 3 and Acts 4. We see it throughout the book itself. As, as, as Peter goes from place to place, God acts, he preaches, he's persecuted. Paul goes from place to place, God acts, he preaches, he's persecuted. Again and again and again, this is how God moves. And God doesn't move against his scriptures. So if that's what scripture says, that's what is. And when we find ourselves missing somewhere on that framework, it's time to go back to the beginning, right? And ask and plead and wonder and and just on our knees, God, we need to see your hand. Do something. We are ready for you to disturb our lives. We're ready for you to, to mess us up. We're ready for you to act. God, act so that we can preach So we can proclaim. This is God's role for us again and again and again. Where do you find yourself on that line of reasoning? Where do you find yourself on that line of of prayer and movement? Are you comfortable? Are you disturbed? Are you praying? Are you preaching? What's interesting as we come to conclusion is how the whole thing wraps up before we move into this this new framework uh, lived out in the life of Peter and then Paul. And that's this text here in Acts chapter 4. It says in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, the full number of them, that's the whole church, they believed. They were of one heart, one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they held everything in common. And there was great power. Great power. The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And there was no needy person among them, 
For as many as were owners of land or houses, they sold them and they brought the proceeds that were sold and they laid them at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each of them as they had need. There is a life in the body of Christ that is unexplainable without Christ himself. He has lifted us up from the darkest depths. He has set us in the heavenly places. He has delivered unto us salvation both now and tomorrow and forevermore. He has broken down the dividing walls of hostility between black and white and male and female and rich and poor. And he's eliminated all of these things by his blood spilt upon the cross. He has given us justification in his resurrection and promise of eternal life. And he has set us here to declare that glory. But we don't declare that glory just with our lips. We declare that glory with the life of the body that is represented here. If you look back and right and all around, this is the body of Christ. And how you love these people right here is how you love him. And it is what the world primarily sees. They look at the church and they say, ah, they're hypocrites. Ah, they're no different than anyone else. They, ah, they don't say, ah, how they love each other. And if there's one thing that we could begin with this morning, one thing we could begin with in showing the power of God, it is that there is no division, no animosity, no need, no loneliness, no depression, no anything except for love between us here. That is something the world could look at and say, there must be a God there at Oakland Drive Christian Church. There must be something going on there. Do you see how they love each other? Do you see how they forgive each other? Do you see how they bear with one another and forgive the sins? And They are walking in a newness of life. Are we walking in a newness of life? Are we sharing our possessions? Are we taking care of one another? Do we see the great grace upon all of us? Do we see the power of God working in our midst? Because if that's missing in your life, you need to go back to the beginning. What's the beginning again? God. So where are you this morning? Do you need to accept the Lord Jesus for the first time? Do you need to stake your claim? Do you need to say, no matter what persecution comes, I am standing here and meet him and us in the waters of baptism, being brought to Jesus and brought to the church, becoming whole, embracing that salvation? Is that you this morning? Do you need to place membership here? Do you need prayer because you're having a hard time? The persecution's coming and you need help because we all need help sometimes. Come down front. We have an elder down here to pray with you. I'm here to pray with you. What do you need? Make your decision today. We read scary words earlier. Don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill soul and body in hell. Those are fearful words. Come to the Lord before it's too late. Experience the fullness of his life and his salvation. Let's do this as we begin our final song. Please stand as well.